So chapter 22, verse, verse 22. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court. For the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered. Or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. Do not be a man who strikes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your forefathers. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. When you sit to dine with a ruler, note well what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for that food is deceptive. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Do not eat the food of a stingy man. Do not crave his delicacies, for he is the kind of man who is always thinking about the cost. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the little you have eaten and will have wasted your compliments. Do not speak to a fool, for he will scorn the wisdom of your words. Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless, for their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. Thanks so much, Anna. Do keep that uh, passage open and there's a, an outline on the inside of your sheet that would help you listen. Uh, I hope you're enjoying this Christmas season. You've had a joyful and restful Christmas day. I also hope you received some uh, lovely gifts. But I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, who here has re- received a Christmas gift on Monday that is already gone? That's already been eaten up or broken or already lost? Hands up. Locked on straight there. Yes, everyone. Yeah, well, I thought there'd be one or two. Most of us, actually. It's a bit of a concern. We live in a, a very temporary and disposable world, don't we? That has always been true. We live in a world which the Bible tells us has been subjected to frustration because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and because of the ongoing sin of every one of their descendants. God brought this creation under what we might call the curse of transience. Things fade and wither and crumble and die. Nothing lasts. And in our modern society, that sense of transience is stronger than ever because of the phenomenon of consumerism. We are constantly being offered new products which are, at best, a marginal improvement on the one we have already, but we need to buy that one because the old one's already broken. In addition to that, we're fed a 24-7 news feed telling us that everything everywhere is in flux, that every day international borders are being redrawn, that governments are being overthrown, that new threats to our stability and our security are just around the corner. That's been our experience from the day we were born, a world in transience, a world where nothing lasts. And yet something in us still craves permanence, doesn't it? We still want there to be something solid and lasting. We still believe that it's wrong for things to fall apart and for people to die, yet we can't seem to find it here. What does it look like to be wise in a short-term, temporary, disposable world? 
Well, in this series of uh, the 30 sayings of Proverbs 22 to 24, King Solomon is teaching his son and us God's wisdom. That is, as Richard reminded us, the skill of living God's way in God's world. Last time, we saw that God's way of living carried with it the promise of exactly what we're looking for, hope for the future, solid joys and lasting treasures. And that continues to be the theme of these verses. The sections that we're going to look at today, it's mostly made up of prohibitions, those negative do not statements that you'll have heard as Anna read to us. But as you can see from your sheet, I think what we're being given through these do nots is a picture of a wise life that can be summed up in three positive commands. Labor for what truly lasts, know what is truly valuable, and walk with the truly wise. And my prayer is that as we meditate on this wisdom, we would see that it is possible to live a long-term life in a short-term world. And indeed that God wants to give us something permanent and lasting, which is so much better than the fleeting pleasures this world has to offer. Before we do that, though, I want to give you a little bit of advice for reading the book of Proverbs for yourself. And this is going to help us as we look at them today. You might have found that reading Proverbs is is quite hard work. If you're working through your Bible reading and you get to Proverbs 1 to 7, you think, oh, gosh. Uh, It's hard. I find it hard work, too. It's a very different genre, actually, to every other book of the Bible. And indeed, to most of the books that you and I might sit down to read today. As you read through Proverbs, it sort of comes at you as a big wall of text, doesn't it? It's largely made up of single, almost standalone sentences that don't seem to bear much relation to what's going on around them. It all seems a bit random. There's lots of repetition of the same ideas, sometimes almost word for word as you move from section to section. And it's really difficult to find any coherent single theme or idea in a given chapter, for example. In other parts of the Bible, you might have a narrative to tie a passage together or a logical argument or a poetic structure. Here it's just one saying after another and it can be a bit exhausting. So what do we do with that? Well, last time, we considered that the Word of God is like food for us. We've just sung that, haven't we? But as ever, it's important to know what kind of meal you're sitting down to. So let me try this for an analogy, and I'm not sure it works, but we're going to go with it. Reading narrative is a bit like an an all-you-can-eat buffet. Went for one of those the other day. It's excellent. In an all-you-can-eat buffet, it's all fairly familiar food. It's enough variety to keep you coming back for more, and it's easy to eat quite a lot in one sitting. That's like narrative. It's familiar. It's fairly easy. You can chomp through three or four chapters in one go. Paul's letters, I would say, bear with me, are like a Sunday roast, okay? Quite complex plate, lots of different elements, but it's a single coherent meal. You couldn't do without any part of it. No roast potatoes, not okay. You have to think about the order you're going to eat things, but the gravy ties it all together and makes it make sense. A prize for anybody who can extend this analogy to the book of Revelation. Come and see me afterwards. (laughs) What is Proverbs in that forced analogy? You have to treat Proverbs like tapas. I'm, I'm, I'm right, just bear with me. In a tapas meal, you take three or four small plates of food at a time, and you don't wolf them all down at once. You savor them slowly over the course of an evening with friends. You take a bite or two of this one and consider the flavor of it. You move to the next. You offer it around and say, what do you think of that? You might consider whether the patatas bravas goes better with the olives or with the chorizo. I don't know if you do that. We don't get out very much. I haven't been out for tapas in about 20 years, but I think that's what you do. Whether that analogy works or not, that's the approach, I think, to go with with Proverbs. Forget about trying to understand or even trying to read a whole chapter at a time. Take three or four or five of the sayings and slowly savor them. 
have a think about them individually, and see if they shed any light on each other, whether the two or three sayings before or after the one you're reading change or nuance the meaning of it. I strongly believe that these sayings have been edited together in that apparently random order to encourage that kind of reading, and that's why the repetition is there. The same saying or the same idea put in a different context will taste a bit different. It'll have a different shade of understanding. We'll see that today. Still not an easy read, but often if you sit with a short cluster of sayings for a while and think about them slowly and carefully, a theme will emerge and you'll start to read them in a new light. And like tapas, it's even better with friends. Let's try that then with our first point, labor for what truly lasts. Let's look at this little cluster, verse 22 to 29, What theme emerges from it? I would argue that one theme that connects all these things together is the danger of short-term thinking. The danger of short-term thinking. Let's start with verse 22. Do not exploit the poor because they're poor, and do not crush the needy in courts, for the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. Now, we we might think that exploiting the poor and crushing the needy is rather worse than short-term thinking. It's horrific, violent abuse of power and injustice, and it is. But notice the language with me in verse 22. Do not exploit the poor because they're poor. Solomon, remember, is talking to his son, someone with a great deal of power and influence at his command. Why would such a person be tempted to exploit the poor? Answer, Because they can. Because it's easy. Because they're poor, so he can get away with it. He can take the land of the poor and needy, and they will not have the resources to mount a legal challenge. He can simply crush them in courts. There are no repercussions. It's a consequence-free crime. That is what Ahab and Jezebel thought when they took Naboth's vineyard from him so that Ahab could have a vegetable garden in 1 Kings 21. If you remember that story, Naboth refused to sell, so they concocted false charges against him, had him stoned to death, and confiscated the vineyard. Easy. No repercussions. Except that Jezebel and Ahab found that Proverbs 22.23 was true. That the short-term easy win led to long-term disaster. The collapse of Ahab's line and the violent death of both him and his wife. As we saw last time, short-term thinking might lead a powerful man to exploit the poor, but knowing that the God of justice will bring consequences in the long term should stay his hand. What about the next verse, verse 24? Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. What is the problem with a hot-tempered man? It's that he lacks patience. As soon as something goes wrong, he explodes in rage. He needs it sorting now, immediately. And he'll do it with force and violence by stamping around and shouting and throwing things until the situation is fixed. Again, do you see the short-term thinking? Deep in his heart, he must know that things will not go well in the long term if he does that. That by meeting problems with rage and anger, he's destroying his relationships, losing the trust and goodwill of others, and probably doing his health and mischief into the bargain. He is, as verse 25 puts it, becoming ensnared, digging a trap for himself as well as hurting others. The short-term explosion of rage might make others do your bidding in the here and now, but in the long term, it's a path to misery and isolation. 
Next verse, verse 26. Do not be a man who strikes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. And we might be a bit surprised by this one. We might be a bit unsure what it's talking about. Basically, this is about being a guarantor for a loan. If someone's about to take out a loan or incur a debt and they're not really sure whether they'll be able to pay it back, they might come and ask you whether you'll guarantee the loan for them so that in the event that they can't repay the loan, you do it instead. And Proverbs says, not just here, but three or four times in the book, just say no. Don't go near it. Don't touch it with a barge pole. We might find that quite surprising. After all, isn't the whole gospel about Jesus paying our debt for us? And doesn't the Bible call us to live for others' good at our expense, indeed to bear each other's burdens? Well, yes, it does. And like most Proverbs, I'm sure there are probably exceptions to this blanket rule. But there is a world of difference between graciously bearing another person's burdens on the one hand and rash and foolish risk-taking on the other. Again, the Bible's not against risk, and it's not against loans. I imagine many of us have mortgages and other loans. We as a church are about to draw a sizable loan to help with our building project. But it is one thing to take a loan which, after careful thought and prayer and planning, you're fairly sure you can repay in good time. It is quite another to take on, take on a loan which you're pretty sure you can't repay and to go around begging other people to do it for you. That is short-term thinking at its worst, the kind of thing that is preyed upon by high-interest payday loan sharks. I need money today. I don't know how I'm going to repay it, but I just need it. Solomon says, don't help another person live like that. Don't encourage that. And don't expose yourself to the risks that that short-term thinking will lead to. Last, do not in this section, verse 28, do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your forefathers. This one gets repeated later in the passage, and we're going to see there a bit more justification for it in terms of once again exploiting the poor and needy. But let's taste this particular tapas in the context of the others. What would cause Solomon's son to want to do this? Well, probably because it led to some short-term gain for himself. The stone's been there for hundreds of years, marking an ancient boundary, but if I'm honest, I can't really see the point of it. It would make way more sense for me if it was just 200 yards that way. So let's just move it. See the short-term thinking there? We see it so often in our world, don't we? A younger generation doesn't really see the point of an existing institution or tradition or passed-down idea, and because we don't see the point of it, we assume there is no point to it. And so it's only years later, after we've trashed it or moved it and things have started to go wrong, that we suddenly realised that that crusty old institution was actually doing quite an important job that we didn't understand at the time. We'll come back to boundary stones a bit later, but do you see the danger of short-term thinking in every case? If you do all your thinking in the moment, if you just want jam today, you'll be tempted by all sorts of sinful and foolish behaviours, exploiting the vulnerable for your gain because there are no apparent consequences. Reacting to, reacting to situations with impatience and temper, taking on high-risk loans because you need the money today, and tearing down long-established institutions because it'll do you good. Short-term thinking with long-term disastrous consequences. But perhaps we might be a bit surprised at Solomon's motivation for avoiding these sinful and foolish behaviours. 
He doesn't seem to tell his son to avoid them because they're morally wrong, because exploiting the poor is wicked and unjust, or because having a hot temper doesn't reflect the patient character of God, or or something like that. Rather, the motivations seem to be something close to self-preservation, don't they? Don't rob the poor. Why? Because God will rob you back. Don't be a hothead. Why? Because you'll be ensnared. Don't be a guarantor for an unwise loan. Why? Because you'll lose the bed from underneath you. It's something very pragmatic, almost self-interested in the motivations here. That is, I suppose, why this wisdom can work for Egyptians as well as for Israelites. I mentioned in the previous talk that around half of these 30 sayings are very similar to an Egyptian collection of 30 sayings that dates from around the same time. Whether your motivation is pleasing God or just making sure your life isn't a train wreck, this is good advice. Take the long-term view, avoid short-term thinking. Yet what the Egyptian text lacks is the confidence of verse 23. Look that back there with me. Ultimately, it is the covenant Lord, Yahweh, the creator of the whole earth, who is the guarantor of eternal justice. The Egyptian version, for your interest, does warn against oppressing the poor, but suggests that nature itself, with the possible intervention of the moon, will punish the guilty. By contrast to that vague hope that the gods will sort it out in the end, the Bible teaches us that all of history is in the good and just hands of the one God who made it all. That he is personally involved in the lives of both rich and poor that he sees all and will one day bring all to an eternal reckoning. Short-term thinking in the world created and ruled by that God is not just a danger to your long-term well-being. It's a personal affront to the one who holds your eternity in his hands. Awareness of him, fear of the Lord, is where this really makes sense and where the wise life truly begins. And so Solomon calls his son, in contrast to labor for what lasts. We see this rather strangely and enigmatically played out in verse 29. It stands alone in this section as an image rather than a do not command. And we're going to see another example of that later. Look at it with me, verse 29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. That phrase, do you see, I think suggests that this is something quite unusual in our world. It's rare to find someone truly skilled in their work. I still remember my dad saying to me when I was a young man, Nathan, when you enter the world of work, you'll find that most people are basically incompetent. Now that might have been a bit of good old-fashioned Yorkshire grump, but was he wrong? How many of us could genuinely say that we have given our best to our work, that we have dedicated time and effort to mastery of our chosen field, that we've given it all, that we haven't wasted time, we haven't been distracted by trivia, we haven't been lured astray by the promise of a quick buck or an easy fix. Mastering a skill takes time and focus and sweat and toil and trial and error. It involves the ruthless elimination of distractions and relentless self-discipline. It requires, in fact, the precise opposite of the short-term thinking we've been reading about. You can't master a skill if you're easily frustrated and have a hot head. 
And you, you can't if you will not pay attention to the efforts of those who've gone before you. You can't if you're simply on the make at the expense of others. And so Solomon says to his son, get this image into your head. Envisage a life where you have invested time and energy and effort into something worthwhile. Take the path of short-term gain, uh, pain, sorry, short-term pain for the long-term gain. But why? Why would you do that? Well, again, the motivation of verse 29 on the face of it seems to be quite self-interested, doesn't it? You'll end up working in the royal court rather than toiling away in obscurity. But this is actually a very different motivation to the short-term thinking we've seen so far. The man who oppresses the poor or has a temper tantrum when things go wrong or goes about moving boundary stones is primarily self-focused, isn't he? Their life revolves around self-indulgence at the expense of others. If they have any skill or cunning, they're using it as a means to an end, to manipulate or control other people or, or other situations so that they can have a life of ease and luxury now. This person in verse 29 is in it for a whole different reason. They didn't learn their trade so that they can use it as a, as a means to get something for themselves. Their reward uh, uh, for applying themselves to mastering a skill is the joy of using that skill. They don't treat their work as a ticket to a life of luxury and laziness. No, applying themselves to the work that they have before him leads to more noble and rewarding opportunities to do that work. Do you see that? They have given themselves to serve others with their skills, and so the reward is the privilege of serving the king with those skills. Do you remember Jesus in the New Testament and he gave the parable of the talents where he says the reward for serving God well in this life is what? The opportunity to serve him more in the world to come. And I think if we really reflect on that, we'll consider that this is what we truly crave from our work when we're thinking most clearly. We might think that the goal of work is to be able to retire to a poolside somewhere and do nothing while sipping margaritas. But that's a postcard, not a future. That is actually a deeply unfulfilling and boring way of life. We're made in the image of God, and one of the things that means is we're made to work, made to engage in creative and meaningful labor. I guess most of us know that at the end of a day of hard, focused work, we feel much happier and more settled than after a day of procrastination and distraction and self-indulgence. Now, I am very well aware that for a lot of people, a lot of the time, we will struggle to find creative, meaningful labor in this broken world. Very few of us, I guess, are in our dream jobs. But there is great wisdom in simply giving yourself to the work that you have to do today, doing it to the best of your ability in honor of the God who has given it to you and with the goal of serving other people. Whether that's designing buildings or carving sculptures or cleaning toilets or serving customers or raising children or answering emails or writing sermons. To give yourself to the labor without looking for quick fixes or shortcuts or ways you can bunk off at others' expense. Now that's very hard. And it won't lead us to get rich quick or even get rich at all. But if we approach our labor thinking about how we can serve others and indeed how we can serve God, we'll find we get something much more lasting. We will grow in 
character like the God who patiently and skillfully works to bless his people. We'll develop a mindset of other person-centered service. We'll have opportunities to use our skills to serve our king. And almost as a side effect, we'll find a way of life which is much more fulfilling than the promise of a quick buck and a long self-indulgent retirement. In fact, we might find that what the get-rich-quick merchant schemes and connives to get, what the hot-tempered man is so furious that he can't get quickly, is actually available to the person who trusts God that his ways of working are best and can patiently give themselves to what's in front of them. Treat what God gives you as a means to an end of your own happiness and you'll be frustrated. Give yourself to them without worrying what will come of it for yourself and you may find you get closer to getting everything you were looking for. Now that is not an infallible promise in this life. These wisdom sayings never are. They are general truths, not cast iron laws. But I think there's great contentment in knowing that working God's way, trusting his timing in his manner, and refusing the sinful shortcut is designed by God to be the way that brings us most lasting satisfaction. And even if we are robbed of that satisfaction in this life, his justice will see to it that in the life to come we will find all of our cravings satisfied in his service. And that brings us to our second section and the wisdom of knowing what is truly valuable. Now there's some subtle and fascinating stuff in these verses. We'll have to think carefully, but I think we'll be able to go a little bit quicker uh, through this. Look at verse 1 together. 23 verse 1, shall I say. When you sit to dine with a ruler, note well what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you're given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for that food is deceptive. In verse 29, we met a man who was serving before kings, literally standing before kings, which is a Hebrew way of describing being at someone's service. Well, here we have a very different image in the next verse. Instead of a skillful craftsman standing at the king's throne, ready to receive his commission, we now have a gluttonous man sitting at the king's table, ready to stuff his face. He is surrounded by exotic delicacies, sweet and savory foods that he's never tried before, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sample the finest wines known to humanity, and he's about to plunge his knife into a juicy, rare steak where he hears the voice of wisdom whispering in his ear, saying, put that knife to your throat instead. Now, don't misread that. It's it's not saying cut your throat. It's, It's not a suicide image or anything like that. It's a very graphic way of saying, do not eat too much, or possibly do not eat anything at all. Stop your throat from swallowing a single morsel. Why? Is it just that you'll make a fool of yourself? Uh, Some of you may know that I sing in a local choir, and we were recently uh, hired to do a commercial gig for a local jewellers here in Lancaster. Uh, The occasion was the launch of a new range of rather fancy wristwatches, and uh, we were hired to stand in the corner and sing some Christmas carols. It, it was fine. It went fine. But we noticed that during the event, trays of delicious-looking canapes were being handed round, and uh, the largely ignored by the specially invited clientele, sort of waved away imperiously. Uh, so when our little set finished, you can imagine what happened. The trays were suddenly surrounded by hungry singers, resembling for a moment a flock of gannets or pigs at a trough. <laughs> Is that what Solomon meant by this? Posh people don't eat very much, don't be common. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so, although that might be good advice. 
let's savour this tapas bite for a bit longer and consider this. How, how did this situation happen? How has a gluttonous person, the kind of self-indulgent, short-term thinking person we met in the previous section, how have they managed to get an invitation to dine with a ruler? That leads us to a second question as we savour the flavour of this tapas. What kind of ruler would invite a glutton to a feast? This isn't a wise ruler recognising a skillful craftsman and giving him a commission. This is a ruler inviting a self-indulgent man to indulge himself. We are right to suspect that this ruler is not after this man's good. Rather, he wants something from him. The kind of ruler who would honour a self-indulgent man is most likely a self-indulgent ruler. As verse 3 puts it, this is deceptive food. This kind of ruler is using this kind of man to get something for himself. In other words, this is a warning. To the man who lives a life of gluttony, if they are invited to a gluttonous feast, he will be tempted to think he's made it, that this is it. This is the pinnacle. This is all his wildest dreams come true. He's lived his life in pursuit of pleasure, and now he gets the best pleasure. Fantastic. Let's tuck in. Solomon says, whoa, 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 don't be deceived. You have not made it at all. You are not being honored. You are being used. Don't eat another bite. Repent of your gluttony and open your eyes to the truth before it's too late. You've valued entirely the wrong thing. As Paul says in Philippians, if your stomach is your God, then your end will be destruction. Following the wrong thing. Next verse, we'll see that again. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. I wonder, have you ever done that thing where um, a bird's flying past your head and you reach out and grab it mid-flight? Have you ever done that? No, you haven't. Because it's impossible. That's crazy. It's impossible to catch a bird in flight. They are so quick and tricky. They dodge out of your way. They slip through your fingers. Don't try it, but obviously it's hard. So, uh, says, so, so, says Solomon, does riches. Now, money is certainly not valueless. It can be earned and spent and given away with complete godliness. But it is, says Solomon, fleeting above all else. If you value money and you wear yourself out to get it, you're valuing the wrong thing because it'll only slip through your fingers. We all know ways this can happen, of course. One risky investment, too many. One spin on the gambling app. One big shopping spree and the money just just disappears. Give yourself to money for money's sake and you're valuing the wrong thing. In the next verse, we see this with another meal with a very different flavor. Verse 6, do not eat the food of a stingy man. Do not crave his delicacies. For He's the kind of man who's always thinking about the cost. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the little you've eaten and have wasted your compliments. Now, this in one sense looks like a very different meal to that in verse 1. But I hope you can see it's actually very similar Both hosts are not thinking about the good of their guests. Both hosts are thinking about themselves. One expresses it in apparent generosity in the hope of deceiving and snaring a gluttonous man to do what he wants. The other expresses it in stinginess of heart. He might give you food and drink, but it'll be through gritted teeth. Perhaps you've been in this sort of situation before where you're someone's guest, but you get the distinct impression that they slightly resent you being there. 
where they feel the need to have you round, but there's no joy or generosity in the meal. It's a social obligation that they want to discharge with as little effort as possible. Solomon says, look, just, just steer clear, because there is a man who does not value the right things. He values money over men, food over friendship. He would rather close his wallet than open his heart. Don't waste your words on him because he does not love you. He only loves himself. And the next verse gives us someone else the wise son should not waste words on. Verse 9, do not speak to a fool, for he will scorn the wisdom of your words. A fool in the language of Proverbs is someone who has no fear of the Lord, who has no interest in the skill of living God's way in God's world. Another person who is valuing the wrong thing. And again, Solomon sadly tells his son that there are some people who will remain hardened to the word of the Lord. There's much more to be said about that verse, but we'll return to it another day. Because the section concludes where it started. Verse 10. Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless. For their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. Here, in a slightly different context and with more explanation, is that earlier command about boundary stones repeated again. Earlier, we saw that moving a boundary stone is an example of short-term and self-centered thinking. Here, Solomon adds that in this context, it's also a tremendous injustice, like the one the section started with. In Israel, the land was allotted to the 12 tribes and their families as an inalienable inheritance from the Lord. It was held as part of the covenant with God, and it was an important part of what we might call the welfare state of Israel. The fatherless, in verse 10, the orphan, would be at a tremendous disadvantage, but they had their land. They could continue to work and farm and rebuild their lives. But if, but not if a powerful ruler moved back their boundary marker and took their fields for himself if they valued their own wealth and possessions more than they valued the people under their protection, if they valued self-promotion and expansion of their empire more than they valued the precious souls of God's people. And here, at the end of the section, we are once again reminded of why it's so important to value the right things, in particular, to value people. Do you see how so many of these uh, situations, these proverbs, devalue people, treat them as a means to an end? Meals, which are in the Bible occasions for fellowship and friendship and joy, are here cynical opportunities to influence the gluttonous and gullible, or resented as annoying expenses and a necessary evil. Money and land and possessions are prioritized over the lives of the poor and needy, even though wealth is so fleeting. And the word of God, the word which invites us into relationship with God himself, is rejected as an inconvenient intrusion into our lives. Solomon warns his son in verse 11, God is the great defender of his people, and so value what he values. Value his wisdom over your folly. Value other people over what you can get for yourself. Value godly character over fleeting treasures. We've already looked at the section that follows from 23 verse 12 onwards, but it'd be well worth reading it again this week or perhaps going back to the sermon from a couple of weeks ago. Because there we see the positive counterpart to these negative prohibitions. A life chasing money and possessions and self-indulgence at the expense of others will lead to destruction. By contrast, a life formed by listening to God's word 
by disciplining our hearts, by embracing short-term pain, even by valuing the happiness of our parents over the fleeting pleasures of sin, leads to long-term joy, the fulfillment of a life well-lived, and the hope which comes through trusting God to bring justice in the end. And so let's conclude by looking at our final small section together. Turn with me to chapter 23, verse 29. We've had one positive picture of the wise life, that craftsman of 2229 who devotes himself to skill and service. We saw where that leads to more opportunities to serve the king. But in the last section, we get the negative picture of where a life of short-term thinking and valuing the wrong thing leads. Uh, The particular example Solomon chooses is that of indulging in alcohol, but I think a similar picture could be painted of other addictions and obsessions and wrongly directed passions. Let's read this together. 23 verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. Oh, when will I wake up? so I can find another drink. It is a brilliant and brutal depiction, isn't it, of the dangers of giving yourself up to the short-term pleasures of alcohol. It looks so beautiful and sparkling, it goes down so smoothly, and yet it leads to pain and forgetfulness and a kind of numbness and a sort of madness. And it leads to an increasing obsession and dependence on drink until it becomes the most valuable thing in the world. Now, the factors that lead to addiction like this are complex. We won't go into them now, but I think the point is a simple one. Don't envy this way of life. Don't envy a way of life given over to self-indulgence and short-term thinking and valuing the wrong thing. Whether it ends up in the full-blown alcoholism we see here or in the sad and misguided and disordered behaviours we saw in the earlier section, It is tragic and it is self-destructive. Saying no to short-term pleasure and short-term thinking and living a disciplined life which values what God values is really hard. But it's so much better than this. And that's where Solomon concludes the section. 24 verse 1 2. Do not envy wicked men. Do not desire their company. For their hearts plot violence. And their lips talk about making trouble. Why would we envy wicked men and women? Why would we envy those who oppress the poor and move boundary stones and lose their temper and indulge themselves? And why would we want to hang out with such people? You'll have noticed that as we went through. Solomon doesn't simply say, don't be hot-tempered or don't be stingy. He says, don't keep company with such people. Don't hang out with them. Don't walk closely with them. Don't follow where they lead because you'll become like them yourself. But why would we want to do that? Well, it's because a lot of, those, a lot of the time, those people win, right? That's what it looks like, doesn't it? 
We can believe with all our hearts that God, in the end, God will judge them and they'll get their just desserts. But for a lot of time in our broken, upside-down world, it's precisely this kind of people who has the money and the power and the fast cars and the big houses. The hot-tempered colleague who shouts and screams in the office until they get their way tends to get their way. The one who cuts shady deals which disadvantages the poor tends to have a healthy bank account. The one who lives for pleasure has pleasure. They win. Even if it doesn't go on forever, even if we know they'll lose it all eventually, they had fun while it lasted, right? And yet right at the end, there's a sting in the tail. This is the first time in these chapters, I think, that we have a motivation for avoiding wicked behavior that isn't really about the consequences. Previously, we've had that, haven't we? Don't behave in this bad way. Don't hang out with these bad people because if you do, this bad thing will happen to you in the end. But here in chapter 24, verse 2, it's not so much about the consequences as about what happens to their heart. Last week, we saw that an ear bent to God's word would lead to a heart which is transformed by his grace and lips which speak life-giving truth. Here is the opposite. Don't envy wicked men because their hearts plot violence and their lips spout death. All that self-indulgent behavior, all that short-term thinking, all that using other people as a means to an end, it might lead to winning on the outside, on the outside but on the inside, it has led to corruption. It has led to a heart which is twisted and skewed. It has led to a heart that is as far away from God's own perfect character than can be imagined. And so it will lead to an eternity without God suffering his punishment. And so don't envy that kind of person. I wonder if you'd turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8. Uh, page numbers on the screen, 1012. If you cast your eye down to verse 31, you'll see that Jesus is speaking plainly about his coming death. And in verse 32, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Peter, you see, is stuck in short-term thinking mode, isn't he? He cannot see how this short-term gain could possibly lead to long-term gain. Short-term pain, long-term gain. I keep saying that wrong. And he does not value what God values. As Jesus says to him in verse 33, he does not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And such thinking is satanic. It will lead, if left unchecked, to chapter Proverbs 24, verse 2, to violence and lies, to envy and judgment. That is the way the world thinks. That is the way Satan thinks. That cannot be the way that Peter should think. And so look at what Jesus says next in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him 
when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What good is it to gain the whole world, all the pleasure and profits that short-term thinking can get you, but be so corrupted in your heart that Jesus will be ashamed of you when he comes to rule? What good is it to walk closely with the foolish, to envy sinners, to seek the approval of wicked people, to dine with other gluttons and be refused a seat at Jesus' table in the new creation? Jesus says, instead, follow me. Don't make it a habit to walk with the kind of people who will lead you astray and conform you to their way of thinking. Make it a habit to walk with the wise son who can transform you to labor for what truly lasts and to know what is truly valuable. Walk with the wise son who never took the shortcut, who always treated people with kindness and grace, who accepted the hardship of obedience for the joy of serving his father. Walk with him and walk with his people and be transformed into someone who can skillfully live God's way in God's world and who can lovingly call people to abandon their folly and to learn true wisdom at the feet of the truly wise son. Now there is a labor that will truly last. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we acknowledge and confess that we are often foolish. We often think in a short-term way. We often are self-indulgent. We often uh, value what you do not value, and we devalue what you hold precious. We're sorry for the ways we have walked foolishly. We're sorry for our envy of others who are living foolish lives. We're sorry where we've treated other people as a means to an end where we have lost our temper, where we have uh, devalued others and ignored your words. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he never did any of that, that he always walked wisely and valued what you value and labored for what truly lasts. Thank you, Father, for his forgiveness and thank you for his teaching. We pray that we would be those who walk in wisdom. Help us to value what you value, Father. Help us to call precious what you call precious. Help us to listen to your word, to know how to make those judgments. Help us to walk uh, with our wise son. Help us to live uh, in his word. Help us to pray. Help us to be with your people and be shaped by that. And help us, Father, to labor for what truly lasts. Whatever you give us to do, Father, help us to do it with all our might. And may we be people who labor for the gospel, uh, to call other people to salvation knowing that that is a work which lasts forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.